what's up movie streamers and filmmakers because we can't go to the movies so you're not movie goers anymore and are the filmmakers and, uh, really making films right now uh hey there's a few there's a few filmmaker I mean, yeah, like, making film some, like people so, by themselves making some videos yeah, yeah. which i'm about um, to do as soon as we're done here oh all right yeah. well there you go look out for that on i'm sure eric's instagram when this is all mm-hmm. said and done uh but um man this what is that i can't read that it's a sabinetic it's a bluetooth microphone see if i have oh. it here in a special no sponsorship cup. but he's gonna do a little review on it yep i'm gonna do Mm-mm. it looks like a uh, e-cigarette that's great yeah but it's really small it's a lot smaller than the advertised pictures because you know they. I take guarantee that some TSA agent is gonna have a field day with that thing. That looks like an e-cigarette, even with the the USB on the bottom yeah. of it. it. Looks just like an e-cigarette. Yeah. Wow, that's dumb. It's a microphone. Um, it's a USB microphone that happened to be one of CES this year's best products. So. Yeah, it's gonna be TSA's number one confiscated. When the airports open back up, basically. Yeah. Um, man, this week though, uh, before before we get into it, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a few things. But I just um, this episode has been a year in the making of uh, you and I standing on the uh, where uh, the outside Paramount back. Yeah, lot Paramount Studios on the streets on of the curb, uh, yeah, um, waiting for the shuttle to go back to Red Studio where our car was parked. Yeah. <laughs> Right. Um, and out walks uh, Matthew Libatique. And mm-hmm. I'm like, hey, that's that's Matthew Libatique uh, walking this way. And you're like, who? <laughs> because that's not your your world. You don't you don't, uh, for lack of a better term, idolize cinematographers the same way that I do. But um, yeah. And uh, I just kept thinking to myself, uh, "Don't embarrass me, Eric. Don't embarrass me, Eric. Don't embarrass me, Eric." And and, and did I? Uh, luckily, no, no, you definitely did not. We gave him a business card, and he told us what his email was. Yeah. And then uh, I just life happened yep. right after that, basically. Yeah. And so we stopped. Um, we, we didn't really think about it again until all of this happened, all this quarantine. And we were like, hey, there's a lot of people that have nowhere to go right now. Let's just hold them hostage and uh, hit them up on Instagram as much as possible until they answer us. But it only took one uh, one little DM. Yep. And he uh, he luckily remembered us and said, let's, let's, let's do this. Let's get together uh, digitally. Not uh, not in person, and um, let's talk. So we we set it up, and man, this this was a really good one. I, I was um, I was taken back by just the just the knowledge and kind of the, just the life experiences yeah. that he talks about in this. Yep. And um, there's a lot of really great takeaways. I think um, you know it, a lot of it goes back to what we're always talking about with uh, story and community in filmmaking and how those are kind of the two biggest elements of, of all of this. And, uh, he, man, he, he did not disappoint. So, um, I, I would, I would love to talk though, because you went through a huge portion of his catalog before we interviewed him, like to just catch up on, on his life basically. Yeah, right? for sure. And you know, cause I, I, I like to prepare, um, 
you know, for those interviews and I want to be, you know, educated to some degree and to my shame, I, there's, there were many great, um, projects that he had worked on that I hadn't seen. Um, like I hadn't seen black Swan. I hadn't seen the fountain. Um, ironically, I hadn't seen straight out of Compton though. I'm totally in that. I totally dig that. And I don't know why I didn't see it, but um yeah i mean it was just a great it was a great uh exercise in um filmmaking studying his cinematography and i did it chronologically starting with um requiem for a dream and then um I forget all of the, I mean, there's, it was a laundry list, but I started there and then I just moved forward through and, yeah. um, even watching inside man and, um, yeah, I mean, you, you really went through the game. Did you watch native son? Native also? son. Yep. Watched okay. native son, yeah. which was the most recent release. That was after stars born. Um, mm-hmm. and so I did, I, I, I purposefully watched in that chronological order because I wanted to see his progression. I wanted to see the progression of his earlier work through and see some of those um, creative choices and how those progressed over time. And, um, and, you know, there are some very interesting signature moves that he has. Um, and he's not afraid to use different tools in his toolbox, which is really cool. You know, I think there's a lot of filmmakers and even a lot of great filmmakers that that they play in the sandbox, but they stay inside the sandbox, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, what's tried and true, you know, a lot of times you want to stick with, but he really, um, he really pushes fearlessly beyond that sandbox in a way that's successful is creative and i mean that's why he's had the amazing career that he's had yeah and uh super dynamic and open and um uh, i was you know i was a little surprised at how kind of candid he was about some of his um you know lesser approved or you know lesser talked about films like the fountain and mother and um uh i I surprised again at just how much of the conversation kind of goes into the fountain which i was really happy about because that's that's one of my favorite movies um especially of his and uh and darren aronofsky's but um man it, it was a great interview we were super happy and super um super fortunate to have him on and uh, I don't know if we need to really say anything else besides that and probably just let people get into it because it's great. Yeah. Well, you know, it was probably the most surprising part of it was knowing how big of Marvel fans that we are. We spent very little time on, yeah. on the, the film that essentially launched the whole MCU, which he was sure. responsible for the cinematography of the first two Iron Mans. So. Yeah. I mean, and that's just a testament to just like, how much else there is to talk about. Sure, yeah. You know, and uh, we, we do talk about Iron Man. We do talk about <laughs> yeah, Iron Man, bit. too. We, so, you know, um, it would have been yeah, remiss a little bit not to talk about it at all. Of course. Yeah. And uh, it's it's just great. It's a it's a fantastic little interview. And, uh, um, again, I'm just super excited to have it. And so, uh, without further ado, here is Matthew Libatique. 
what you've been up to? Uh, you've been doing much with quarantine and everything? I heard they just extended California a little bit, didn't they? I actually didn't hear that. Uh, you know, I, I, to be honest, when we shut down and we went in, I anticipated, you know, no earlier than June. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, like, mentally, I'm prepared for June, July. Oh, that's good. How about you guys in Arizona? Yeah, we're we're starting to open up restaurants and stuff, which is a little weird. I, I think it's way too soon for that. But I mean, I personally won't be going to any. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I, I think California's probably taking the right move here. It's it's a little strange for us, honestly. Yeah, I mean, people are upset and uh, people have been going stir crazy in their homes. But uh, at the end of the day, it's like, let's be responsible. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yep, for sure. And people will be. I mean, uh, you know, there's going to be a certain part of the population is going to go rush out and have a, you know, six person meal at a barbecue joint. Right. But then, um, you know, they'll be sitting in the restaurant by themselves uh, with a staff of three or two. Yeah. Right. And, um, but a lot of us, like, you know, you and I probably stay at home. Yeah. You know, and wait it out. Yep, yep. Yeah. Last night we, we got some sushi and I get, you know, pick up, take out curbside delivery. <laughs> and then, but right. they had actually opened up. They were, they, it, said they were open for seating when i walked in to to get my takeout order there were probably half a dozen people in the in the restaurant with were there people no really yeah it was it was really kind of surreal in one sense to have have a normal experience in this abnormal climate i mean it was pretty strange yeah Yeah, that is is. well hey thank you so much for doing this we really appreciate it um I, i know it's you know, you got a you got a ton of stuff going on. I, I just saw a couple of your Instagram lives that you did, and um, so really appreciate you got you jumping on here and doing this for us. And um, we're super honored to have you on here. Like, no no joke. Um, it's it's great no, to I have you. It. And um, we're we're big fans of your of your work, and uh, we would love to kind of get into that and talk about it, man. Um, that's that's kind of what. The goal of our podcast is to get a little bit more into um, the filmmaking side of, of things and not so much just, you know, talking about movies and TV, but really talking about what makes movies and TV. And um, yeah, I mean, let, let's let, I guess first let's start with, um, you know, the history of, of you, because there's a little bit of uh, I mean, you born in, in New York. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, my parents immigrated from the Philippines in 1966. I was born in 1968 in Queens, New York. Yeah, uh, the epicenter of the epicenter. Yeah, and um, yeah, Elmhurst, Queens. Now, what year and, did uh, we lived in the East Coast? What year did you end up moving to California? Uh, it was in um, the early 80s. Uh, I'm thinking about when. When was I 14? We're at, uh, around the age of 14. Oh, okay, we moved. Uh, we had lived in uh, Queens. Bounced around. Uh, both my parents worked for a living. Um, I mean, they're collecting salaries my whole life, but I didn't amount to a year's salary that I make now. And um, the you know we lived in Manhattan and uh, Hell's Kitchen. Uh, we lived in uh, Queens, obviously, and then we also lived uh, before we left the East Coast. We lived in New Jersey, off the next New Jersey, and then uh, you know we. Uh, but as a family, because we had so many people who were starting to leave, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of my aunts and uncles actually came to California, and we were the last to migrate back here. Um, and then I ended up uh, going to high school here. Yeah, the Titos and the Titas, 
my wife's Filipino, so yeah. Oh well, we could talk about food, man. Yeah, we could. <laughs> we could. We could talk. You talk about food. I'm. I'm. I had balut for the first time last year, and it was. It was way better than I mentally imagined it being. <laughs> well, balut's a food that you shouldn't describe before someone eats it. <laughs> when it was introduced to me. When I was introduced to me, I was in the Philippines at the age of five, and I ate it, and I loved the taste of it. And yeah. not until like uh, I was ten did they tell me exactly what it was. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first time I was in the Philippines was in two thousand five, and my wife's dad was—he was like, "Oh, we're gonna get you some balut." And I, because I went to school in Orange County, I knew I had friends that were Filipino that had told me what it was, and I'm like, "Sure, I'll try it." He disappeared. This is Christmas, right? Right. So there's like 50 different people in there, <laughs> and he leaves for two hours to go find some on the street, and he came back empty-handed. So I had to wait. But yeah, it was it was uh, it was quite the delicacy. That's fu- that's <laughs> funny, man. It's the power of imba- it's the power of fermentation, <laughs> right? right <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now, is it? I understand you went to Cal State Fullerton as well. I saw that in your bio. Yeah, I did. I went. Uh, what years were you there? I was there from '91 to '95. Okay, so you're younger than me. I uh, I left there in '90. Uh, I left there in '89, uh, '90. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 It, I I was uh, a late bloomer. I I had gone to uh, Cerritos College for a couple of years before I got there, and then I just spent most of my time partying and not going to class. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why did you grow up in the or did you grow up behind the orange curtain or uh, um no I, I was i grew up in Downey. so you know when i was watching okay. um uh straight out of compton i was like hey there's a lot of areas that i had been you know in there right. and you know growing up through that which which is right. really cool um there's a lot of familiar themes there right yeah yeah for sure um yeah i mean i i worked at record stores when those records came out so uh yeah, man, there's some formative years. Yeah. It was a fun movie to make just because of it. Yeah. Was that surreal to, like, be making that movie of the music you kind of, like, grew up on in a way? You know, to be honest, I, it was sort of an extension of the my Spike Lee experience. You know, I, I yeah. was so influenced by uh, Spike. I was sort of motivated inspired by Spike Lee and Anna Dickerson uh, would do the right thing. And she's got a habit that I, you know, that sort of propelled me into this this life of uh, pursuing being a cinematographer or a filmmaker. And, you know, when this, it was the first, it looked, I, the only gig I've ever chased was straight out of Compton. Wow. I was literally sitting in a hotel room in New York uh, on, I don't know what I was on, but I, I turned the TV on. It was like, uh, is he, I think it was Ellen or Oprah and Ice Cube was on there. Yeah. And he was talking about, they were talking about uh, uh, an upcoming straight out of Compton and I'm literally, you know, I immediately called my agent and I said, hey, I heard there's going to be a straight out of Compton film. Like, oh, yeah. And he gives me all the details. I was like, I want it. You know, I, just, yeah, I want yeah. it. And, um, and lo and behold, I ended up getting it. And, you know, I chased uh, F. Gary Gray, you know, who had been, uh, he's, a, we're the same age, but he had already made a mark on, uh, in the music video Well, You know, he had done, you know, uh, TLC and he'd done all these uh, amazing videos with Ice Cube and and he um, he grew up there you know and I uh, I was able to it was a it was actually Oscar Sunday wow well, I, I, I don't forget that I don't remember the exact year 
uh, obviously neither one of us was up for one. So we, uh, we met at his office and, um, you know, we hit it off, which is, uh, you know, I didn't expect not to. And, um, he had an entire wall of snapshots, you know, like the prints you'd get from thrifty or, uh, yeah. Walgreens, you know? Right, right. And, and each photo represented a scene and a vibe. And I was, and, it was sort of like the, uh, the immediate visual reference of the time. So, uh, you know, I just, I, I was, um, I was really, really, uh, excited yeah. you know, just to, to do it and be a part of it. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, it's, it's funny because what I, was surreal though, if I may say, what was surreal is like, you know, looking over at the monitors and seeing, uh, Dr. Dre. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or MC Ren or, and, uh, yellow, or on any given day because he was working on a movie like Ice Cube would walk by. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a fan too. Yeah, you know sure. I mean? I'm a pop cultural fan. So that was, um, I don't know, it was, a, it was a highlight for sure. Yeah, yeah. It, it's It's been interesting because I was looking through and I've seen, I mean, I've seen like the majority of the movies you've worked on and it was, it was cool to see that there's so much music entwined in your you know, in your work that you've done from music videos to just, um, like a star is born and, you know, straight out of Compton, have you always kind of, um, had a love or gravitated towards musical projects? Well, I mean, growing up, uh, you know, obviously, um, you know, those of us who kind of grew up at the time that I did and, uh, you know, music was probably more important than cinema. Like cinema basically yeah. exploded for me in the early nineties and the late eighties because of people like Spike Lee and Jim Jarmusch and, uh, you know, eventually Richard Linkletter and Robert Rodriguez. Um, and, and, and it, it, all of a sudden these people made it attainable for a person that of, of, of a certain means, you know, and a certain upbringing. And, of, you know, it's a, it was the first level of democratization of being able to be a filmmaker, right? All of a sudden it was like, we could do this without the studio system and independent cinema with killer films in New York and Ted Hope and all these people just made things possible for us as, uh, as filmmakers where we didn't have to be beholden to studio, the studio system, right? So, but before that, um, obviously it was music and it was an explosion of that because you had, you know, at the time you had, you had people like KRS-One and Public Entity on the yeah. East Coast and then you had, uh, you know, um, uh, Too Short on the West coast. And then, yeah. and then you had, uh, but you also had Nirvana coming in years later right. and the yeah. Pixies and, you know, so, so it was like an explosion of, uh, of different genres of music all at the same time. And previous to that, you had the Smith, which made a huge mark in California and, uh, around the world and, and the Smiths. And, and then you follow along the lines, who's in the Banshees oh, yeah. and, uh, Tones on Tail, Love and Rockets. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. just a, a lot. It was a lot to be exposed to, and I, I really feel like people of uh, uh, at least my generation were exposed to a lot, and, and and subsequent generations. I think previous to that, it was you know that's the disco type of attitude. But right. like in my in mine, it was like an openness. It, it started to bring an openness to uh, different genres of music, and you weren't uh, you weren't playing for a certain team. Sure. Yeah. That 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 makes a lot of sense. I mean, we we always think of the best music videos I can think of are always done way outside this, the system, you know, and, and they're so unique and, um, yeah, there's an emotion that comes with music too, that I think is easy for a lot of, uh, audience to connect to and, and, uh, everything like that. But, um, 
you know, I, I want to talk into into your movies now. Um, and one that I want to bring up is uh, it's something that I don't think enough people talk about, honestly, and that's Phone Booth. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, did that movie, did, did it originally start out as um, dealing in just a singular location mostly? Or was that something that kind of came up between uh, you and the crew later on? Or was it was it written that way? Mm, yeah, it was written. In, it was written in that way. I mean, it was. Uh, it literally took place in a phone booth. It was like, you know, I had worked with Joe Schumacher on Tigerland, right? And um, it's funny because I, I he asked me to do phone booth, and I, it was probably the easiest, quickest script to read because it was just it, it would just it grabbed you and it just didn't let go. Yeah, I think a large part in large part because um, it it kept the suspense going in the screenplay and in the writing, it just kept the, 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 uh, without, uh, act one, two and three, it was just this ongoing thing. It'd be an interesting make, film to remake, sure. you know, uh, uh, in a different way, obviously not in a phone booth cause that wouldn't be a contemporary <laughs> right. uh, thing. And it, I remember it at the time being a thing where it's like, we've got to make this movie fast before it's irrelevant. Um, but it was, it was, uh, you know, we shot it in 14 straight days in Los Angeles. We did a couple wow. days, in New York where we tried to get, you know, uh, some, uh, you know, just, just to try to just try to surround, uh, our, our set, which we shot in Los Angeles and connected to the skyline and the atmosphere of New York. But, uh, that was it. It was like cutaways ultimately. And, um, you know, the, it was just a, a film that was, there was only one way to make it given the, uh, you know, what Joel wanted to do was ultimately create uh, something that, where we would literally shoot a thousand foot mag from beginning to end and roll out. And wow. if we, we would reload and if we got it, if we didn't get it, we'd do it again. And we would just keep going as far as we could. And I thought that was super interesting. It was, uh, it was uh, mind blowing. You know, it's like, we we're just, plus I'm a young filmmaker at that point. You know, I was, I think I was 30 or uh, 31 and I'm, I'm, um, I'm, you know, I, I, and it was day exterior. It was November, and um, we didn't have a lot of light. Uh, we came up with some pretty extravagant rigs to try to control the light. Um, but you know, it was just a film that we just from beginning to end we had to um, we just shot as long as we could, and we blocked as long as we could. It was almost like a stage play, you know, with yeah, multiple sure. cameras, um, multiple cameras running. When uh, we had come up with a language whereby. You know, at the very beginning, the cameras are further away and uh, and on long lenses. And as the film progressed, we we built a language where we had the camera go closer and and be in closer proximity to uh, Colin. You know, and Stu, I guess his character's name. And you know that that it sort of uh, that was sort of a it was a challenge. It was a challenge, but it was kind of it was kind of uh, exciting. You know, everybody had to get out of the way and we were looking in different directions Sure, and we were all focused on a phone booth. It was like every camera was like one of the rifles that was focused on. Oh yeah. 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 That's, that's a really good uh, analogy to that. I mean, it was just, I remember watching that. I mean, gosh, it's what almost, I don't know how old it is now, but, uh, and just thinking this is, how is this so engaging with just one set piece the whole time? You know, yeah, I think really you guys did a a killer job on that and I wish, I wish more people talked about it. Uh, It's yeah, it, it's it's such a great uh, story beat film. Uh, yeah, uh, 
I, I really enjoy that movie a lot. I credit the screenplay uh, in large part, to be honest with you. As I look at that film, I wish I would have done a lot of different things, you know? Sure. And, okay. um, but there, it was funny cause, uh, you know, a lot of the ideas initially when we read the screenplay, we maybe we put the thing on a gimbal and we do all these extravagant shots. But, um, like this really, it just, it had to be pretty, um, it had to be motivated. Like the perspective of the camera has to actually be, uh, put you in, put the audience in a place that made sense, you know? Um, you know, at the time there was a lot of temptation because, you know, uh, uh, I forget the name of, uh, what's the David Fincher film with Jodie Foster? Oh, Panic Room. Um, Panic Room had come out, right? Yeah. You know, some amazing yeah. shots with, with, and, and, and David, you know, at the time was, a, you know, he was, he was doing things with the camera and technology yeah. that, uh, just blew our mind, you know? And there was a temptation to try to, to try to do things like that, you know, put the thing on a gimbal because it's all, how do we make it exciting? But then at the end of the day, you know, I think Joel did, had a good instinct. It's like, let's let the performers do their thing and let the, a really good screenplay take care of itself. And, um, and just a simple decision, like, you know, camera placement sort of helped, helped make it happen and, or didn't take away from the power of the screenplay because it was such a good read just you're talking about relationships there and you have one with, um, you know, Darren Aronofsky, um, which goes back, I mean, a long time now and a film that, um, I would love to talk about if, if you, if you're willing is, um, the fountain and just the, I'm really curious, (laughs) like this, such a, it's just such a, cerebral film and there's Mm -hmm. so much going Mm -hmm. on in it. Um, what were just some of the challenges, um, in approaching that movie and that script and that story, um, from a cinematography standpoint, because it is kind of, I mean, for lack of a better term, like it's out there, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's really, uh, it's the first film where I had to develop a kind of discipline for myself from a lighting standpoint. Uh, you know, uh, one of the things I love to do is work with color temperatures and mm-hmm. um, and create contrast. Uh, create contrast not necessarily with light and dark at all times, but create contrast with color and have uh, warm tones uh, contrast against cool tones. And the fountain was a different story altogether. It was a palette that was largely warm and. Um, it went from the reds and yellows and magentas and not maybe not magenta, but the, the you know, the reds and yellows and, and just, it was very strict. And from a lighting standpoint that, that brought challenges for me because that was uh, outside of my zone. Really. Um, and, and, uh, but it, but I learned so much from it. I mean, ultimately, uh, I became a better cinematographer from, it. you know, and it was a personal story for Darren. It was very, and it was a time in our uh, careers where it was just, you know, we were pushing really hard. You know, we pushed really hard on, on Requiem. Like, pushed mm. extremely hard on Requiem. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, style choices. And The Fountain, we were still, there's a hangover from that. And we were still doing similar things. But we were, you know, trying to grow. Um, and it was it was a film that was probably, at the time, was the biggest film I ever saw. It was a $30 million budget. Um, you know, when we... I don't know how much you know about the story, but initially we were going to make it Australia with Brad Pitt and the film was going to be an $80 million film and had a lot different. Mm. It had a lot of big set pieces in it 
that would have been amazing to make, but that wasn't the film that we were allowed to make. So we ended up, uh, the film shut down. And another year and a half, two years later, he resurrected it with uh, um, Warner Brothers, and we were able to make it, uh, you know, for 30. And he, a lot of the set pieces, a lot of the action scenes were stripped down. And at the core, it, was, it became a... Um, you know, a personal project about uh, mortality for him. Because, mm -hmm. You know, it was, it was it was something that I wasn't fully aware. I mean, I was aware of it, but I I couldn't I couldn't get there with him to uh, connect as far deep as he did with the with the subject the subject matter. You know, and um, but it was but we were connected cinematically, and it was but it was a really hard shoot. We were under a lot of pressure. You know, like these two guys who made pie and wrapping for a dream. <laughs> <laughs> are going to make a $30 million movie and they seem to do what they want. So how the fuck are we going to, you know, yeah. how the fuck are we going to control that? <laughs> right. And, uh, there was a lot of pressure and they, 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 they placed a, uh, you know, a line producer in there who was great, uh, at his job. But when you, sometimes when you're great at your job, you affect the other positions. And, uh, you know, I remember like, as I look back on it, I remember there being a, a the way of the world on myself and our production designer, James Chinlin, who had done Requiem for a Dream with us and is a, also a good friend. And we, it was really, really tough. Uh, just, you know, he built insane sets and we created rigs, uh, you know, born out of the mind of Darren um, that were, and he, he you know, he, if you look at, it's interesting, and I think as a maybe somebody who studies film, if you look at the fountain and then you look at his very next film, The Wrestler, which I didn't do, um, you'll see almost two different filmmakers, but you'll see the same one at the same time. Sure, you know he, he learned to strip down a lot of the um, the sort of four corners of the frame, sort of symmetry. Uh, he was able to embrace it. He's able to embrace symmetry in a different way, but the camera feels like it's more free. Um, and you know, it was a uh, it was a learning experience. I mean, I had to deal from a technical standpoint. I'm dealing with like things that I'd never dealt with before. I mean, you know, what does it look like to travel through a nebula? Right. Yeah. Right. You know, and I, yeah. you know, I, okay, what does it look like to travel through a nebula? And you know, what what would be the what would be the light level of a dying star? You know, I'm saying, mm -hmm. how do you articulate mm -hmm. those so that they seem impactful? And uh, I, I learned a lot about, and I forced myself to learn a lot about. Um, stretching the negative, uh, you know, back we shot film and you know, how far can I go in overexposure and how far can I go in underexposure? And, um, and I think that might be part of the stress I felt when I was making the film is that I would underexpose things so much and dark because I knew that eventually the film was going to build to something really bright. And, um, and you know, that sort of, um, knowledge about that knowledge about, um, the highs and lows really uh, has has, has uh, taught me a lot of, about how to expose things subsequently. Uh, as we were talking about the fountain, and you know, you're talking about the colors and the color palette and the shooting things, you know, dark and that whole juxtaposition between the dark and the light, which did um, the the final product was so good in really communicating that element of darkness and light in in the thread of mortality which was really cool so um i don't know if that was the intent 
you know, but, you know, sometimes we get caught up in a lot of um, the choices that we're making yeah, for sure. different reasons. But then the final product is this am amazing uh, illustration of kind of the overarching, you know, theme, which is cool. Yeah, I mean that brings up a, a good point. Like, how much are you? How much time are you spending? How much? How many questions? How many meetings are you having with directors on just um, you know overall feeling of the film? I mean, I know as a cinematographer, that's what you're trying to convey through imagery and composition. So, um, what what do those conversations kind of look like with you and uh, Darren? Any, anybody that you're working with? Well, it, it varies from director to director. I think. I, I, every person is different, you know, the way they approach it and the way they, um, prepare for it. And, um, as a cinematographer, you have to be ready. Uh, you have to be ready to, uh, embrace a person's process. You know, uh, uh, with Darren, it's, it's easier because we hang out socially. Yeah. Right. So, um, and with other directors, sometimes they are getting pulled in so many different directions, you know, protosorially or, uh, budgetarily they they or in casting for example or maybe there's rewrites to be done you know it, it's uh it's incumbent upon a person like myself or a cinematographer in general to actually um, spend time with them even if you're not actually talking about what you guys want to talk about <laughs> right you know, i remember a, a case where uh, john uh, favreau on iron man one was having a meeting with robert Downey jr and um and uh, Jeff Bridges. And I sat there, you know. Yeah. Had nothing to do with me. But I had a camera, like I had a video camera. <laughs> and I just, uh, I, I, I thought we were going to maybe work out some stuff and shots. And it just turned out to be the most amazing conversation that I just was witness to because I was hanging out with the director. Yeah. And uh, just listening to him. While at the same time getting my phone and like getting texts from my crew about, you know, logistical questions about pieces of gear, <laughs> but that those are the things that I think you have to uh, open yourself up to. Is that you? You know, there's a lot for us to do as cinematographers when we're prepping a film. But the most important thing is getting to know your director. Right. You know, and even if you're not getting direct information and you're not getting all your questions answered, perhaps you're getting uh, to know them more, and then you're, uh, you know, you just have a awareness and uh, ability to uh, transpose the things you've learned about them so that you're not missing the mark when you make a decision. Yeah. Well, you, you brought up Iron Man. Iron Man's <laughs> probably my favorite MCU character. Um, not probably, definitely is. And Iron Man is my number one in the MCU film. Maybe talk a little bit about that in the, in the sense of what, what it was like, because I know that John was, was pushing to have Robert on, and, and it was a big risk because of just his reputation, you know, and it was kind of a rebirth for him, which was great. Um, but that, that and Iron Man 2 and those early MCU movies kind of really s launched this massive empire, like this yeah. massive franchise. Um, what was that like uh, initially? And then now looking back on that, are there things that, um, that, that were difficult that you would laugh about or? Yeah, <laughs> yes. right, right. It's the first one. Did you have any idea of kind of what it would lead into now? I mean, looking back at it now, it's like, it's this multi-trillion dollar, you know, whatever thing. 
and uh, you, you set the tone in a lot of ways for everything, you know, at least uh, cinematic imagery wise. Yeah. And um, so I guess it, it, one thing would be, you know, was, was there any pain points then that you kind of laugh about now, like while making Iron Man one? And then a follow up question to that would be, um, how did you approach Iron Man two differently after Iron Man one was so successful as it was? Well, uh, Iron Man one was, uh, you know, walking into uh, the offices of Iron Man one was like, uh, it was, it was the duality of having a very independent cinema, independent film attitude to John and a, uh, also through, um, uh, to be honest, through Avi Arad, through Kevin Feige, mm. you know, these are guys, these guys are like, uh, you know, they're all embarking on their first venture, in, sure. in, right. so to speak, where they're completely independent to make whatever they want. And, um, you know, Lou D'Esposito is, was, a the line producer and, uh, you know, Victoria Alonso was the, the effects supervisor, you know what I mean? It was the beginning of it all. Yeah, so, yeah. and, um, it was, it just, but it, but it felt home-like to me. <laughs> you know what right, I mean? Sure. Because the attitude was new and, um, I was new and, um, you know, I had to pinch myself when they even offered me this thing because it was a $120 million movie. Right? Yeah. Right. Like, why are you offering me? I mean, you know, I didn't want to ask too many questions. I just <laughs> wanted to get the gig, but, yeah. but, the, but, uh, you know, but making it, the attitude behind it, uh, it, it wasn't very corporate at all, you know? And, um, and John wanted Downey. He really wanted Robert. Yeah. And I, I was fortunate enough to have worked with him on Gothica previous to oh, that. Right. Oh, yeah. Met him. I saw his brilliance. I, you know, I was able to witness how, you know, even in a small role like he had there, I just was able to witness his jazz-like uh, ability to improvise. Yeah. And it's, and it's just he has a um, mastery of his craft. Even then, he had a mastery of his craft. And, you know, I don't know where you read about him, uh, you know, uh, sort of uh, what the situation was uh, trying to get him to do the movie. But, you know, Marvel wanted to do due diligence, so we did screen tests with him. And um, I, to be honest with you, I just wanted to take care of him. You know, yeah. I I, uh, I respect him so much as an actor. I respect him so much as somebody who's contributed to American cinema. You know, I, I put him on a pedestal. The top, the top ten, maybe top five people I've ever seen uh, in the craft. So, uh, what he added to—I don't know that Iron Man would have been successful if it wasn't for him. You know, when you talk about setting the tone for something, you know, it's in large part him. It's a, it's really in large part John, and I credit John and I credit Robert. I mean, these guys totally took comic books to a different level because, you know, the benchmark when we made the film was that it was Batman. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. You know, a completely different thing, like right. photographically different, uh, totally completely different. You know, it was more Arkham Asylum, you know, and then, mm -hmm. and then you look at the Marvel things and uh, they had a sense of humor, you know? Right. And John had a sense of humor, and it's just sort of embracing, again, going back to the theme, you embrace who the director is, you know, and, and, and understand what this guy is about, what the tone setting is, and and, uh, and John is, you know, he's, he's a leader, like a leader by yeah. just his personality. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You want to follow him, you want to follow him into the, you know, you want to follow him into a, a wall of machine. 
you know, um, just because he has a personality and, and it's not dogmatic. It's just, uh, it's more kind of effervescent. So. Sure. He, are you going to get on his, from, uh, his you know, chef show, his Netflix chef show? Have you seen that? No, but I'm, um, I know he does like food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> He's had a few people on there. It's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I mean, what was, what was the changeover going to Iron Man two after it was, uh, kind of what it was. The funny thing for me is Iron Man two was, um, you know, I, I read it, uh, when I read it, I realized that there was a lot of, I was excited about the introduction of all these characters and the, um, the sort of, uh, uh, hinting at the, at the future. Um, I've, you know, obviously read a lot of criticisms about what that film was. And uh, a lot of it had to do with, um, you know, it, it, it missed a mark because it, 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 it sacrificed a lot of its narrative because it wanted pizza and all these other characters. Mm. But at the end of the day, it's like, um, I think Iron Man two is the a film that you look at in the grand scheme of the, uh, MCU, you know? It, it, it it's a jumping off point. It's an introduction to the idea of shield. It's an yeah. introduction to the idea of the universe. And, um, and I thought that if you rewatch it, it's, it's done in a very interesting way. It just has confusion because like one of the most, uh, compelling characters is Sam Rockwell's, um, yeah. hammer, yeah. yeah, you know, and, uh, he doesn't exist really in the future, right? but you want him to. And, um, so I, I think that, um, oddly, you know, may, may make the film kind of like a little anachronistic, uh, you know, compared to the, the subsequent films. But, um, but if you watch it alone by itself, there's a lot to enjoy about it. You know what I mean? There's sure. a lot yeah. of good things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each yeah. one of them. And, and in, in roadies, a great thing. It's mm-hmm. like, what a chance to shoot. Um, you know, the film could have gone a lot of different ways because there was so much potential. It's like almost having too much food to eat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know sure. what I mean? Like you had, like, could we can't, you give me a whole film about Downey and Chief. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yep. And you can make a whole film uh, uh, about Downey versus Hammer in, in Rockwell. Right. Like, and, uh, <laughs> and then you layer in all the sprinkles and nuts and everything you get at a, uh, you know, ice cream shop and it's like it became this uh you know i can't taste ice cream yeah it's like too much choices for hollow hollow and you go you've only got so much room to to eat it all i can't eat that stuff (laughs) (laughs) uh i'm curious how the um i mean it's gotten more and more as as time has gone on but the relationship between visual effects artists and the cinematographer a lot of things are created a hundred percent in a computer sometimes. Um, what is your interaction with, um, the visual effects artists, visual effects, um, directors, um, with movies like this, uh, birds of praise, another one that I'm sure has a lot of CGI in it as well. Um, how does that work with, um, with you and the visual effects artists? Well, it's, it's like, um, he's another extension of how a relationship with a cinematographer, uh, is with a production designer. Okay. And, um, and the same thing for a production designer and a visual effects supervisor is, um, there's a creative, uh, world that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a goal. There's a, a end game. There's a world that we're trying to create and getting on the same page as part of the sort of, you know, heavy lifting of prep on any movie. 
you know, Venom uh, comes to mind immediately only because obviously we're going to rely on CG to, to mm-hmm. know what Venom is going to be. Mm, right, right. You know, and, um, but luckily we had a genius in Tom Hardy that sort of, uh, you know, played the sort of Jekyll and Hyde duality of uh, two different uh, beings. And, and um, there was cinema underneath the CG, you know. Mm-hmm. I think that's important, but the, but the, you know, Iron Man two, for example, there's a, a Japanese garden at the end of Iron Man two, where we built a huge set that basically crowded an entire stage of Sony, and because we want interactivity and we wanted something real to represent. But you know, when you look back on it, a lot of that stuff was some of it was used, and there was something um, to it, right? There's something uh, relevant about it that made it work. But ultimately, you have two actors that are ultimately going to be having their face covered. So the entire thing becomes a CG environment. Right? Sure. So why did we build this whole set? You know, we built this whole set so we could make a very extensive template for the work, I guess. Mm. But, um, then you look at, uh, the, one of the final battles in Venom where they're on and they're in, they're in the, uh, San Francisco Bay. Right. And that's largely, you know, we shot the actors on the set that was much more simplistic than the Japanese garden. Uh, that was more of a proxy. Like you would do a parkour thing, you know, you would mm-hmm. do a parkour in space video or something. And that is, um, it does stand out. You have to, you, you got to kind of be careful. It's like how much, how many, how many opportunities do you have to actually in, in uh, uh, ingrain real elements into a CG environment? You know, it's tough for CG. And I, I think it's, um, when a film uh, exists in a photorealistic uh, realm and then you uh, graduate to a third act and a climax that is largely CG, um, I think in, I think that it, it's really... Uh, look, we're still waiting for CG to match reality. Mm-hmm. Sure, mm-hmm. yeah, you yeah. Know? Right now, it's like they do such a great job and we understand the difference between photorealism and what that is and what the rest of the film is. But uh, uh, maybe there's ways to uh, incorporate elements if somebody would take the time to gather those real elements so that they'd be incorporated into the CG. Almost like, say, you take a shot in San Francisco and it's Venom. You're taking a real shot and you're putting Venom in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. Well, what if you take an entirely CG shot and every practical in the shot is something that we shot as an element? You know, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, hand right. hand. there's a, there's an element there. Um, I think that technically we haven't cracked the code on yet because of time and, and expense. Sure. Um, speaking of technology and, and, and CG, um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with these, um, the unreal engine led walls that are coming out and, uh, like shows like the Disney plus the, the Mandalorian, you know, it's filmed almost yeah. entirely on that. Um, yeah. What, what's kind of your, your thought on just that technology and um, the future of cinematography with that? I think there's a, a lot to explore. Um, I have to say that, uh, look, a lot of it, uh, I think you're going to see more of it if we can get the equipment to create more volumes around the world because mm. of, uh, you know, what we're dealing with right now. Sure. You know, uh, it's going to be a thing where you don't want to travel uh, a whole crew to a place and shoot in a real situation. And can we get away with controlling it uh, for public safety, for health safety, public health safety in a place where we could isolate people and keep them safe? Uh, obviously, from a nuts and bolts perspective, I think that 
is valid. And, you know, it's also valid in the sense that when you're creating uh, otherworldly environments and having control, Mandalorian did a superb job, you know. But, you know, there's limitations to the reality, of course. It's like there's things there's things like uh, how do we crack a code on hard light? Like right now you look at it and, you know, everything's soft and beautiful. But sometimes um, something may call for a little bit of a messiness. What yeah, I worry yeah, right. about is that technology is going to create a, a homogenization mm. of our images. And um, what we should do is uh, figure out uh, within technology to continue to push this side, try to make it uh, to give us more options. But I think it's a valid way uh, for us to think about cinema and how we could, you know, certain movies could be shot this way. The thing is, is that it, it flips the workflow. Uh, a lot more has to be done in pre-production yeah, before right. the execution phase because you have to create these environments, whether they be shot or created or uh, pieced together through live-action photography and uh, CG. And that's going to be something that's going to be a learning curve for a lot of people. Mandalorian has it, and John Favreau has a complete and utter understanding of what that means. But... Um, but let, I don't think everybody does. It's not the, look, nothing is an easy fix. There's a learning curve to everything. And sometimes that's steep and sometimes it's not. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I, the, the, one of the things that I, like I said, I binged quite a few of the films and I've watched, I've, I've watched the creativity that, that you've brought to the table with, use of time-lapse, right? I you know I watched Chungking Express and I watched how they used that there and just some of the inspiration. Um, the, the, use, the use of parallax that you used in Inside Man and, and the, the actor on the dolly shot, you know, from Requiem. And then, you know, there's... And just the thread of that creativity and how that's grown has been really inspiring to me. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what you do with, you know, like the LED wall thing and, and some of those things as well. But how do you, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the fear of homogenation of the look and, and that's a very real thing. I could totally get that. Um, and so, you know, there's so much planning that goes into, you know, the, from, from the script and pre-production and, you know, building the, the set and the framework, um, how much, how do you balance all of that control and, and then the spontaneity of the creativity? Let's take the, uh, led screen volume stagecraft out of it. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I think that the, the more prepared you are, uh, to, to take on the day and execute the film, the more you're prepared for improvisation and spontaneity. Mm. And I think that, that no matter what, um, it's understanding your environment. Look, I, I, you know, I come from two different places. Like I, I've done the larger film that is, uh, you create, there's an artifice around you that and you're trying to create reality. Out of. And then there's, um, I've come from a indie background where it, there's a lot of, uh, naturalism around you, but you're trying to create a cinematic experience. So mm. the, it's uh, it's understanding your situation, it's being in control of what you need to do to sort of execute the narrative, but then being open to those magical moments where you improvise and there's spontaneity. There's you know there's a moment at the beginning of A Star Is Born where um, um, you know we um, Jack Maine goes to visit a uh, piece of property that used to be his dad's house, and um, 
and it's like it's just windmills. It's it's a uh, it's a bunch of windmills. Um, we were looking for what was in the script was something else. It was like something we just couldn't find. Mm-hmm. It was a housing development, you know, and it was like it, you know the, the effect and the power of what had happened in the scene was conveyed in the screenplay the same way, but we just couldn't find the right place, right? And, uh, you know, we're standing in the middle of uh, Coachella Valley and there's nothing but windows. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and you have a director who is uh, always trying to make the film better in Bradley Cooper and the windmills sort of represented something he could utilize mm. visually. And it ended up being better than the initial idea in the screenplay. And uh, that was a director being open to spontaneity. Yeah, but yeah. we had a plan. We all know what had to be conveyed in the scene, which is important, which is the control. Uh, but being able to say, you know what, let's talk to locations, find a spot that we're allowed to shoot and um, take a finder, walk around that area and find the shot. And we did that. And I think it ended up being better because we improvised the spontaneity. But we knew what the tone of the scene was and we didn't lose that yeah. through a different decision. There's some of the best moments in the movies in movies, and making them is uh, being able to take the camera and face it the direction that you didn't think was going to happen. And the light changes, and then you end up uh, reshaping what you're doing, you know. And um, as long as everybody's on the same page of what the tone is of what you're trying to create is, you get better. That's right. right. Yeah. But right. Uh, but you know, going in with a certain sense of control is important. Yeah, kind of like the uh, the reverse motor on the Ari, right? And you set it to point seven five, and getting that exposure that you didn't expect. Are you talking about the? Uh, oh, wow. When did you hear that story? It was, um, I did, I shot with the Aries, I remember, mm-hmm. and I had the reverse motor on that uh, set. And I thought, my, I, I couldn't figure out why this 100 foot roll lasted so goddamn long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, oh, that's great. What, what, what would you say has been one of the biggest risks that, you, that, that you've taken and then it just paid off? Um, hmm. That's a good one. I mean, I always think back to the fountain. The fountain's uh, something that uh, always sort of uh, resonates with me over time, um, because I, you know, and mother as well. Like, uh, but because both films weren't as um, warmly received uh, as you know, Requiem and Pie and Black Swan, The Wrestler, you know, but. Uh, and it's a very personal thing because I know how much work that Darren and I put into both those films. And I, I'm proud of both of them, you know, and whether or not they are appreciated by the mass public has, um, as time's gone on is less important to me. And sure. what's yeah. important to me is that it's appreciated as a film over time. Yeah. But the fountain, uh, you know, I was, I was of a certain age. I was pushing myself in places that I'd never been, you know, uh, senses of overexposure and underexposure, were things that I was exploring kind of for the first time. And um, I, I think uh, in a way, as time's gone on, it's become the payoff for um, the struggles and sort of, you know, sort of the, the, just the mental masturbation of understanding and, or, or wondering if I'm doing the right thing every day. You know, and back in the day when we shot film, like, I, I would uh, wake up at 5 a.m. and I'd go to the lab and watch daily in high speed which what that was is that you would take the previous day's work and you'd run the print through a, a projector 
at, you know, twice the speed so that you can get through it all. And I would just make sure that my exposures were in the realm of uh, what I was aiming for. And sure. there was a lot of work in that. And I, and I did that because, well, one, I had heard, um, I heard Janusz Schmitzky at one point, he, uh, you know, Spielberg would always make him go to Russia's in the morning before he showed up the set. And I was like, I want to do that. You know, I, yeah. I, I think it's necessary. <laughs> and I did it on phone booth too. I did that in phone booth and we had so many cameras. I was having two projectors run at the same time. But the sort of that sort of, um, responsibility or that burden as a cinematographer was something that I kind of enjoyed, but you know, working at the light levels I was working at and, uh, working in, in, uh, sort of stretching the latitude of the stock and, and pushing it on the highs and pushing it on the lows, you know, um, I don't know if I could have done that without actually having to see it the very next day. You know, we don't have the, back then we didn't have the benefit of just looking at a monitor right. in Red yeah. 709 or a P3. So, uh, but, um, when I look at the movie, uh, now it's, you know, it's, um, it's kind of a, a gratifying testament to the effort, uh, not only for myself, but, uh, all my collaborators, especially Darren. Sure. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, real quick question about how much, how much are you, um, looking into or worrying about like HDR now, just from like a technical standpoint, is that something that's on set constantly? I, I imagine birds of prey was probably, pretty uh i don't know i don't want to say involved but they probably took that into consideration um with the whole 4k home releases and everything like that is hdr much of a factor on set right now i wouldn't say it's a factor on set because if you if you think about it, hdr is actually um, you know no matter what you're doing to the negative or the file um hdr is only going to expand that right yeah um and uh, it's really about uh, creating an algorithm in post-production to make it look like the film's supposed to look um, and perhaps it's mostly for archival purposes so that we can, uh, uh, sort of, you know, stay in, uh, in, in, in lock sync with the times as times change, we have more latitude. Right. And, um, I can say this, I, I remember, uh, I've retimed Requiem for Gene twice. I, I did it first from, uh, SD to HD. Right. And I remember looking at uh, certain shots and seeing how much latitude there was just in HD off of negative. And then I recently did it um, from uh, HD to 4K. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's a uh, it's mind blowing how much more detail you get and how many more things. So, but you know, in both cases, I was just I wanted to look like the film that was represented at the time. Yeah. So any highlights that I didn't see, I wa I didn't want to see. Yeah. Right. Um, I don't care if I could bring it down. Um, but I think that because, you know, look, our, our color spaces are going to change. Um, technology is going to move forward and march forward. And we, in one of the struggles I think is actually how we archive our films. Mm. You know, how are they going to, uh, no. you know, we look at the, a film like, um, um, sweet smell of success, you know what I mean? Or, uh, or, or uh, HUD, or uh, uh, Citizen Kane. You know, yeah. you know these things mm -hmm. are like people. It's 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 a per, it's somebody's job to make sure that those films are applicable to our current technology. And um, as soon as you make a film, like it's part of your responsibility to sort of shepherd it through time, right? Until you're dead, you're right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, right. And yeah. Um, and uh, I, I I think. Um, HDR is part of that process. It's really hard to look at for me initially when you just put it up. 
I don't know if you guys had the benefit of seeing like a film that you, you know, typically it's at the end of a DI where you do the entire process and you're kind of tired of looking at the movie. And all of a sudden, uh, okay, you want to look at the, they bring up a monitor that's like, you know, whatever, $30,000 yeah. and yeah. heavy as shit and <laughs> makes right. the room hot. Right. And uh, you look at the film and you're like, you're almost, it's almost like you're starting over again. Mm. Huh. You're like, holy shit, you know? But it's necessary to look at. It's necessary to understand because you want, um, you know, you, you, you want to have a hand in what the future might be for the movie right? Yeah. and how it's going to be portrayed. Yeah. And yeah. then, and then somebody's yelling at the tech that forgot to calibrate that monitor. <laughs> oh man. I would no. hope not. Yeah. That would suck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I walk sure. out of the room when that happens. Yeah. <laughs> right. I, I, so I'm just grateful for this time that you've been able to spend with us. And, um, and I, I want to share something very personal um, as you, you know, as, as I've kind of stepped through a lot of your, your films, some I've seen numerous times, others seeing for the first time. Um, I've, I've been in a, in a very interesting place just mentally and emotionally because I lost my son last year. He was 18 years old and he was in, he was in the music space he was signed to Atlantic. He was doing the hip hop thing and he was doing, he was, he was on track to be really successful. Um, and he succumbed to a drug overdose. And so for me, creatively, I've, I've just been not motivated. Um, and then compound that with the COVID thing. And you can ask Zach, Zach even pulled me aside the other day and was like, are you okay? And, and I'm like, I haven't been. And, and even though there's a, there's, considerable dark themes in some of these like requiem um black swan um and even the the scene where uh, hugh jackson's character loses his wife in fountain um and uh and then again the scene in um uh straight out of compton where easy ease in the icu and it brought back a lot of those feelings because he was in the ICU for two weeks. But what I wanted to share was not all of that bummer part. What I wanted to share is that after going through your creative process, I've been re-inspired. Um, you're, 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 you're pushing the element of, of filmmaking, your process, um, and just the things that you've done in these films has reinvigorated me to, to get out of this funk. Um, and I don't know how else to say that, but thank you. Thank you for the inspiration that, that you've brought for me personally to, to help me to be whatever filmmaker I'm going to become. So thanks. I really just wanted well, to say that. I mean, first of all, I appreciate that. Um, and, and most importantly, I, I, my condolences. I, I can only imagine that loss. I, I, I have a 20-year-old children myself, and, you know, when you embark on the world at that age, you remember being that age. Yeah. You know, you remember being that age. Yeah. And all the things, the hopes and the insecurities you had. And, uh, look, I, I think um, what those films and themes uh, convey and the darkness that you speak of is um, they're really, I think what, 
cinema can do in its greatest sense is it makes you connect with something that could be dark yeah. because um, we're meant as human beings to persevere through that. Yeah. You know, we're, we're meant to persevere through uh, addiction and we are built to persevere through uh, the loss uh, and mortality and the ideas of it, you know, especially at a time like this where, you know, we're surrounded by death and, um, it's just, uh, what, but when it comes from a personal place, it's really hard. Uh, it's really hard to just, um, step outside of yourself, Yeah, you know, to, 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 to just realize that, um, perhaps you can get energy from other people to make it come out of it. I appreciate what you've said. Um, but you know, the most important thing is, uh, is what you, you know, you, you actually, you did it to yourself. You know, yeah. you, you're able to, uh, look outside of yourself and, um, something around you was able to help you like be the hand that gets you out of the swamp or the quicksand of it, you know? And, um, uh, I think cinema does that. I think, uh, storytelling does that. And I think that maybe one of the chief purposes of it is not just to entertain, but to give you thought and then connect yourself to the human condition. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I you know, just the, on the other half of that, I think what's really important from a filmmaker standpoint is to push the album. It's like each and every one of us that is so lucky to be doing this needs to, needs to push the envelope and forward our craft. It's like technology. You know, uh, uh, I wouldn't say I'm, uh, you know, what cinematographers do is Silicon Valley, but, um, but like looking, stepping outside of ourselves and looking at how we can shoot something or how we can make something look and, and articulating things in a different way and fucking connecting to people viscerally through visual, uh, imagination. Like that, those things are super important, you know? Yeah. And it's like, yeah. uh, it's progression. It's progression. So it's like, you know, I, I'm not the same filmmaker I was when I was 30 and not or 40. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and like, uh, but you got to keep pushing, pushing, pushing. Else, um, you know, uh, or else you, it's, it's, it's time to let somebody else, um, uh, you know, sort of, uh, take the place, you know? And then, and I don't know if you cease, how can you cease to be interested anymore if you're not pushing? Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. You know, that's great. And growing, yeah, yeah. I've been getting a lot of um, a lot of his fans base has been asking for a documentary because that was something that we mentioned during the uh, memorial, and um, I've been I've been it's been hard to relive that, but knowing that I need to go through that pain to to get to that next level of growth, and I think that documentary is going to be, you know, for me that's going to be the next film project yeah. that really helps me grow not just as a filmmaker but grow as a person and really you know well what was his name uh jacob what was he go by um hella sketchy was his was his uh artist name <laughs> <laughs> that used to be Amazing. it used to be his gamer tag he was a big gamer when he was younger and um he just kept it when he went into the music scene was he on twitch um he was yeah yeah, he was on Twitch and um, SoundCloud oh, cool. and all that. Yeah, that's cool, man. It's a good name. I mean, um, you know, I think uh, it's really hard to look into the past. I don't know if you've ever done deep dive and photographs like like when he was when Jacob was like two. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It brings back every single fucking hard time you've ever had in your whole life when you when you look back at those yeah. photographs and uh, 
and it's it's hard, you know. You force yourself to do it, but then it does bring joy eventually. I don't know. I I think, um, you know, uh, I just hope that you get to a place where like the making of something for him is a celebration yeah. that you enjoy. Yeah, not a chore. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Eric. And um, Matt, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, we will we won't take any more of your time. I know uh, you probably have a few other things to be doing, but um, really, this has been uh, so enlightening and awesome. And uh, we really, really appreciate you doing this. So thank you, thank you so much. It's nice to meet you guys. Thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Thanks for your interest. Hopefully, we'll I see you at Cinegear in October. <laughs> yeah. It's in a year in October. That's something, huh? Yeah. At least it's California. It's going to be warm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, man. All right, guys. Take care of yourself. Thanks. You too. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah, man. man, what an interview. And again, Matthew, so thankful to have him on and um, it's just so many good nuggets in that and just hearing him talk about the fountain, um, which I just don't think is talked about enough. And um it's just super interesting and engaging the whole thing. And, uh, I really, really appreciate having him on. So, um, if you want to find Matthew online, uh, he's on IMDb, obviously Matthew Libatique, check out his history and, uh, his past works. And then, uh, if you want to see him on Instagram, uh, he's at Libatique. That'll be in the show notes and check out his most recent works, uh, birds of prey on video demand. And then, uh, native son on HBO, right? Yep. It's good stuff. So, um, yeah, it's it's all great. It's all gorgeous and beautiful, and um, he's he's staying pretty active on Instagram. So uh, a lot of good stuff on there. Some behind the scenes Iron Man stuff that he just posted recently, and uh, really cool. So um, I think that about does it, though. Uh, Eric, you want to close this out? Man, I I can't even just get over all the great nuggets and value that that conversation brought, and hopefully the audience is grateful as much as we are. And being able to get to do what we do, I'm so just, I'm very thankful. And if you want a, a free stream of Birds of Prey or your Netflix month paid for, hit us up. Give us a review on your favorite streaming platform and, and send us an email with a link to that review. And Zach will verify it and then he'll send you whatever that amount is to get that done. Um, yeah. Did you know there's Netflix gift cards? Yeah. Weird there's, thing. there's some, there's all kinds of cool yeah. online digital goodies that we can provide. Anyway, be sure to follow Zach on Instagram and Twitter at Zach Abbott. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Eric Thurston. You can find the easy podcast on Twitter and Instagram at the easy podcast. You can find us on YouTube at The Easy Podcast Show. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or concerns, you send all of those straight to Zach at The Easy Podcast Show at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time. Peace.